Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, the theme is women's health and COVID-19 vaccines. You're going to see a panel that will include Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Merrick, and Bing in a discussion with a Dr. James Thorpe. He's an OGB uh, YN specialist in maternal fetal medicine, 42 years of experience, 7,000 high-risk patients a year that he sees. He sits on the board of multiple uh, scientific publications. He's published over 185 peer-reviewed studies. Quite simply, he's one of the most respected uh, obstetricians and gynecologists in America. And uh, this panel is, uh, is doing a Zoom conference. I will be having, in the next two weeks, Dr. James Thorpe on the program for an in-depth interview. But I thought you would find this of interest because it starts off in a little different way. It starts off with a just a video of the ocean. And then we hear a, a woman, and she's Australian, talking about her frustration of trying to help her elderly parents and when her father finally gets sick and knowing the likely outcome is hospitalization, intubation, and then death. She goes about trying to find something that her own research has showed her works, and that's ivermectin. But it's not allowed. It's banned in Australia. They have some of those draconian policies in the world. So it's her effort to find it, finding it, giving it to her father, and in less than 12 hours, turns it completely around to where he's on the road to health, and a few days later he's totally healthy. Saved his life. It's just an introduction to show you that not everyone, when told that they can't find something or use something, uh, will find other ways of getting the job done. It also shows the larger overarching picture, which is, had every doctor in the world been encouraged to use the best medical practices that they could at the time of the first symptoms within a patient, we would have saved about 85 to 90 percent of the people who died of COVID. And then instead, we were told, get vaccinated, and that will prevent you from spreading to others or they to you. You will not get hospitalized, you will not die, and you won't get COVID. All of that now has been shown to be completely wrong. In fact, as I've showed this week on a program, uh, and I've played it three or four different times for those who don't listen every day, that everyone gets it, that under examination at the European Union and its special committee on COVID investigation, the subhead of the committee, a Danish gentleman, asked uh, the top representative from Pfizer, who was sent by the president of Pfizer to answer questions because he refuses to, and they refused to give documents. When they did give documents, they were all blocked out. They were all redacted, just black lines, no information, no transparency. And uh, he said, did Pfizer test to see whether the vaccine that they were making would prevent the spread COVID? And she said, no, it was fast-tracked and we were at warp speed, etc. And yet from day one, we were told, take the vaccine, 
to prevent spreading it, care about others, create herd immunity. We're given all these statements. Now think of the consequences. Think of the countries you couldn't fly on. Think of the airplanes you couldn't fly on, the restaurants, the movie theaters, the shopping, the normal way you would conduct yourself, even going to an office. If you weren't vaccinated, you were a second-class citizen. You were attacked mercilessly. So, and then that led to people being fired, uh, all types of acrimony within homes where one person would uh, argue with another person who didn't have a vaccine and as if they were a danger to society. Well, guess what? Now we are having an understanding that we were lied to. Think of the consequences of all the quarantine, which should never have happened. And we were told it shouldn't happen and that it was dangerous. And more people would die from the consequences of being quarantined than from COVID. And now I'll go back and look at the professor from Stanford University, the professor of Harvard at Harvard and a professor at Oxford University came together, all top epidemiologists, and they wrote a scientific paper. And then they did what was called the Great Barrington Declaration. Initially, it was signed by about 75,000 scientists, medical doctors. Now, I was just uh, reading that it's 800,000 have signed it, showing that, that that was wrong. They didn't deal with efficacy or safety, but that in itself was wrong. They were all attacked, all three of those who signed the, created the Great Der Barrington Declaration, yet they had impeccable careers. And so everyone who questions the official narrative has been attacked. In this discussion, you will hear how one of America's most respected obstetrician gynecologists is himself attacked in the methods they use. Now, this is just in, and this is from Epoch Times. Quote, this is Tyler Durbin. Alberta's new premier says unvaxxed are, quote, the most discriminated against group she has seen. Quote, Alberta's new premier, Daniela Smith, says those who chose not to get a COVID vaccine are the most discriminated against group she's seen in her lifetime. The, quote, the community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. And she said this at a press conference. Uh, I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey, or not allowed to go visit a loved one in a long-term care or hospital, or not allowed to go to a, on a plane to either go across the country to see a family or even to travel across the border. And uh, she says, and she made these remarks shortly after being sworn in as the premier of Edmonton. And during the leadership race, Smith had promised to bring fundamental changes to Alberta's health services and to strengthen laws to avoid discrimination based upon medical decisions. Quote, this has been an extraordinary time in the last year in particular, and I want people to know that I find that unacceptable. We're not going to create a segregated society on the basis of medical choice. Now, similar to other provinces, Alberta brought a, in a vaccine passport system during the mandate and closed down businesses and places of worship. Well, now we're saying, based upon the testimony at the uh, European Union, 
from Pfizer that that was completely unfounded, no scientific basis, and uh, all that was done, all that human suffering for nothing. So I give you that as an extended introduction to the uh, people that you're going to hear from now because each one of these people, including one of the most scientifically cited doctors in the world, Dr. Paul Merrick, I mean, he has had uh, almost a 50-year impeccable career, as has Dr. Pierre Corey, a cardiologist, all attacked, all canceled. But thank goodness they form frontline doctors, and uh, now Dr. James Thorpe is there to give his experiences on women's issues. Remember, he's in the front line. He's considered one of the finest medical doctors and scientists in the world in his field. And so you won't hear him mentioned in the New York Times, won't allow, and no one will debate him. They'd lose. That's why we're presenting this program today. Now to the panel. Hi, I'm from Australia, and I'd like to tell you my ivermectin story. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but in Australia, we didn't have the pandemic here for a long time as we shut our borders and didn't let anyone in unless they did two weeks quarantine. So we had a lot of months uh, in, which we could, in which time we could get ready for when it eventually it did hit. Now, I spent those months doing a lot of research. From my research, I decided two things. One was that I definitely wasn't going to have the vax and that I was going to try and talk as many people as I knew out of getting the vax, especially my family. And the other thing that I learned was that ivermectin was the solution to the pandemic. And I came to this conclusion in part from my reading on the FLCCC website and the protocol and the testimonials of the doctors there. So that was all well and good. But the problem we have in Australia is that ivermectin's pretty much illegal. You can't get it prescribed. Uh, the hospitals have it under lock and key. Um, so I was in a bit of a quandary because my parents are in their 80s. My in-laws are in their late 70s. And I was thinking to myself, well, this is great that you've told them not to have the facts and that ivermectin's the solution, but what are you going to do if they get sick with COVID? So I decided I was going to try and source ivermectin. So I did a bit more research on the internet and I found a website called the Zaverto Kit Store, which is an Indian store, which will pretty much send ivermectin to any country, I believe. So I took a leap of faith and I got on there and I ordered some and I thought to myself, this is never going to come. It's never going to get through customs. It's never even probably going to get sent. It's probably a scam. But I've got to take the chance as what other options do I have? So I paid my money and lo and behold, one day it rocked up on my doorstep. So I was very pleased about that. Uh, anyway, the pandemic eventually made its way to Australia and we were going along and then one day I get a phone call from my mum and she sounded terrified. I've never heard her sound so scared in my whole life. And she said, Dad's really sick. He's got COVID. He's struggling to breathe. He has two lumps in his throat. 
one which he can swallow past, one that he's really struggling to swallow past. What am I going to do? And I said, Mum, we've done the reading, we've got the protocol, we have the ivermectin. I said, you need to get Dad to take these tablets. Now, my dad doesn't like taking medication, but I said to Mum, you have to make him have some. So she did. She, she got off the phone and she gave him ivermectin and some zinc there and then and then she gave him that was about six o'clock at night and then she gave him another dose before he went to bed and she rang me the next morning when she woke up and she said oh it's incredible um everything we've read and all those doctors we've listened to that they're they're completely correct your dad's so much better he can breathe again uh the lumps in his throat are subsiding he can swallow he feels a lot better and she followed the protocol for the rest of the week and dad made a complete recovery he was quite tired for a couple of weeks but probably after three weeks he was back to normal so i can honestly say ivermectin works i've seen it with my own eyes and i am also incredibly grateful to the doctors at flccc for their bravery in speaking out and for putting this protocol up on the website where anyone can access it, because I truly believe that without this medication, my dad would have had a very different result. He would absolutely have been in hospital that night. So from down under, I thank you with all my heart. Keep fighting the good fight. Yes, our doctors know what works. You know, they've been treating COVID patients ever since the beginning of this pandemic. and. They saved lives in ICUs long before that. And they've been talking to other clinicians and researchers to continue to learn throughout the pandemic about what is safest and works best uh, against this novel disease. So tonight, tonight we're doing something you've been asking for. Tonight, we are bringing in an expert OBGYN uh, who has been, you know, our doctor's been talking in detail to this doctor and others, and to learn more and to be able to share more with you tonight and going forward about COVID and women's health. And you've been asking a lot of questions. Oh, we've been getting so many about COVID in pregnancy with breastfeeding. And what do we know about the effects of the COVID vaccines on women's health? And we're going to answer your questions tonight, lots of them. Uh, we already have four top nurses working behind the scenes. They are answering questions that you text into the Q&A. And I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the Alliance and this nonprofit group. It's worldwide. It's growing. And I'm going to be giving your key questions to the doctors. We have Pierre on tonight, your favorite, and Paul, your other favorite. And our special guest tonight is Dr. James Thorpe. He is a board-certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and maternal fetal medicine physician with over 42 years of obstetrical experience. He's also been very active in clinical research with over 175 publications. And Dr. Thorpe sees 6,000 to 7,000 high-risk pregnancies per year. So welcome, Dr. Thorpe, and we're delighted to have you. So let's, doctors, Hey, Jim, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is uh, Dr. Jim Thorpe, and I'm a uh, 
board certified obstetrician gynecologist, uh, also board certified in maternal fetal medicine. I am a very busy clinician. I see 6,000 to 7,000 high risk obstetrical patients a year. I've been busy like that clinically my whole career. I've also spent a lot of time um, doing clinical research in addition to the full-time clinical responsibilities, uh, reviewed for major medical journals, published uh, 180 or so publications. I've uh, served on the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Board of Directors. I have um, been in the military to fulfill my uh, duty, my back time for a health profession scholarship program from the Air Force. And I'm currently residing in Gulf Breeze, Florida. All right. And Jim, sorry to be cavalier and, and uh, cynical, but given your career in academics, you're highly published, you've been a leader in your field, uh, on the board of uh, major society, um, the rest of your field supports you in trying to call attention to the issues going on with the vaccines and COVID? Uh, I think you know better. Um, <laughs> I had to start with that, sorry. I'm the only maternal fetal medicine in the country that has um, voiced my concerns against uh, the powers that be, against the medical boards, against the Federation of State Medical Boards, the American Board of Ethics and Gynecology. Uh, they've silenced us all. They've threatened us all, all 25,000 of us OBs, and there's about 1,500 MFMs around the country. We're all silent. If we speak up, we get threatened with our livelihoods. So um, I won't tolerate this. Yep. Yep. Hey, Pierre, yeah. should, uh, do you think Dr. Thorpe should start his PowerPoint? Sure. Thank you very much, uh, FLCCC. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored to be here, and I'm so honored to be a part of, of your organization as an obstetrical advisor. Um, I really appreciate you have motivated me. You have given me just I've watched you guys. You, you all are my heroes. Um, First slide here, patient betrayal, the corruption of healthcare, informed consent, and the physician-patient relationship. This was, the, uh, this was the title of our publication, of which uh, Dr. Merrick, thank you for being an author on that paper. There are 19 authors altogether, and this was a very large, um, lengthy publication, probably 20, 20 to 25 pages, including references. And this is a medical legal uh, publication, if you will. It was published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. And we sent an open letter to the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology outlining the concerns that we had with their statement on gagging physicians, gagging obstetricians and gynecologists, um, and threatening them with their livelihood if they didn't passively acquiesce to the politically correct nonsense of the COVID vaccination. So I have addressed them in writing personally, um, and they responded in kind that they would refuse to debate me on the issue and threaten to uh, eliminate my livelihood if I pressed on. I pressed on a couple more times, and um, they didn't pay attention to me, so we published this article. It, uh, it includes four well-known attorneys nationally. I think we make a very strong case for corruption, fraud, and racketeering influence, 
organization, criminal organizations, RICO violation. So the main thrust that I have is number one, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology and all the other physicians um, that tow that line have broken the golden rule of pregnancy. You never ever initiate a new treatment in pregnancy, whether it's a vitamin, a supplement, a drug, or a vaccine, you never ever do that until it's been on the market for a long time. So that golden rule was broken. And if that weren't bad enough, they went ahead and they threatened the, all the physicians who would dissent, the complete opposite of the academic scientific method. This slide right here, just starting out with, with the lies, you know, yeah. we were told that the vaccine in, in 2019 and 2020, we were told that it would never be mandated. Well, oh boy, they lied to us. No, I, the framework that you just presented is absolutely excellent. It's it's the one we've been trying to fight for. But I, I think the point you just made is so important, right? Like we were talking the other day, like you don't introduce novel therapeutics interventions in the pregnant population until you have a an extended safety record. And yet they continue to do this, even when we know it doesn't prevent infection. So I, I think it's... I think it's, I mean, it's, it's really important to recognize that, really important to recognize. And, and, and I'm glad that you guys try to call attention to it. I go on record as to saying I'm not going to speak to your audience and say that I don't think it's a good idea to use a vaccination. I'm, I'm stronger than that. I'm going to say it's contraindicated in pregnancy, should never, ever be given pregnancy. And if your doctors are telling you to take it, they're lying to you and they're part of the problem. Yeah. Um, you cannot take this in pregnancy. It's very dangerous. I've seen disastrous results. And, and you're going to show us, I assume you're going to show us the data on that, right? I will. Yeah. I will. Um, you know, the data started, uh, if, if you look at the former vice president, and, and I know uh, Dr. Merrick and Dr. Corey, you know Michael Eden well, you know what he stands for. He he he's blown the whistle. Former Vi Pfizer vice president. Uh, he he knows full well that it was back in 2012 that we had this article that documented that the lipid nanoparticles um, they they didn't stay in your arm. They were dispersed everywhere. They broke every God made barrier in the body. The blood brain barrier in the mom, the adult the placental barrier from mom circulation to the fetus, the fetal blood-brain barrier. And if that weren't bad enough, it is concentrated in all of my female fetuses and all my female moms. Um, I haven't taken care of any male moms yet. Thank you, Jesus. Um, Jim. The, the ovaries have only a limited number of ovum. And, and by 30 weeks gestation, a female fetus has all of her ovum that she's ever going to have for her entire life. This wow. is uh, in contradistinction to the testes that continue to make germ cells every day, millions and millions and millions. So when these uh, toxic lipid nanoparticles get concentrated in the ovaries of 30 weak fetuses or in the ovaries of moms, it should strike a huge bell, alarm bell, and alarm red lights flashing of danger, and it hasn't. Um, next slide, uh, Lydia. 
This is just a proof we were also told that the pseudo-uridinated, false, fake, artificial, man-made, not God-made RNA is reverse transcribed into your genome. We were told that that never would have happened. I was called a conspiracy theorist when I even brought up that possibility two years ago, and I was laughed at and mocked. Well, isn't this interesting? Now we have two studies just in the last four months that document that indeed the artificial messenger RNA that is pseudo-uridinated um, is reverse transcribed back into the genome and it may stay there forever. We don't know. So we were lied to on that front as well. Uh, next slide, Livia. These are, by the way, our live mice and we knew this. And this is Michael Eden and this is the data from the Japanese Pfizer um, and I, I was given this a year ago by a whistleblower. This was from Japanese Pfizer company. Uh, they did a FOIA request. This, they knew it. The lipid nanoparticles concentrate. Look at the concentration highlighted there on the over, ovarian tissue. There's a massive concentration in the ovaries and, and also the testes. Guys, I'm not quite as concerned about your testes as I am the ovaries because I'm an OBGYN doctor. But, but actually more importantly than that, more scientifically than that, you make new sperm every single hour. You know, at 30 weeks, 10 weeks before a baby girl is born, she only has a million for her whole lifetime. So we are playing with the entire future of humankind and human reproduction. Jim, I, I didn't know what you, I, I didn't know the degree to which this is true. I mean, when I'm looking at the concentrations at 48 hours, it's it's 12 to 20 fold all other organs and tissues. I mean, it is the most concentrated place where they collect. Exactly right. And and you have the the PEG, the toxic materials and the lipid, and, and of course the very dangerous and toxic uh, messenger RNA. I want to show you this, and, and I actually have some new data that I've just um, crunched this weekend, but this is representative, um, and all the OBGYN docs and the politically correct cartel say, ah, menstrual irregularities, that's mostly benign and not to worry about any of that, that's just background noise. And I, by and large, I would prior to this pandemic, I would say, yeah, you're right. Most of the time when there's an irregular menstrual period, you know, years gone by, it, it's not cancer or it's not a major problem with infertility. But this is very different. This is happening on a mass scale and having just shown you that this poison is concentrated in the ovaries, this brings up a whole new perspective of concern and we should be paying attention to this. I'm involved with the... Uh, CHD uh, and uh, the Tiffany Parato, my cycle story, and um, the rest of our, our uh, research group around the country. Um, we published our first manuscript on, on, on this uh, three weeks ago. Um, and we, we looked at uh, one of the major and rare complications that we call decidual cast shedding. And don't feel bad, Drs. Merrick. Um, and Dr. Corey, uh, most physicians have never ever heard of a decidual cast, nor have ever seen one. And Jim, I've been I've been reading about it. Now, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've certainly been following that, and and that's a, a, as troubling a story as any other. You're going to tell us. 
So if, if you look at this slide, this just gives you a, a, a visual. Look at the first bar. These are, remember the, the COVID vaccine has only been around for 18 months. These other vaccines are vaccines that are commonly used that have been around for 40, 50 years. Look at the per month report of menstrual abnormalities of COVID vaccine per month compared to all the other vaccines. It blows everything else off the record. And, and here's the menstrual irregularities in the COVID-19 pandemic. We're almost to the point of publishing our second part, uh, and then part three will follow. This is uh, vaccine deaths per month, and I think that you all know that, um, and you've seen this, this same graph format. I did all the statistics. The statistical modeling, it's so robust that no matter how you make your assumptions or adjust your assumptions, it doesn't change anything. The underreporting factor is at least 40, if not 100. That would equate to a sensitivity picking up in the VAERS registry of only about 1% or 2% of cases that actually occur, birth defects per month. In my business, inflammation in the womb causes malformation and death. And um, I'm, I'm going to just pull up right now as we speak, I'm going to pull up analytics that, that I just got done with last night. And I'm looking, there were- so, um, Jim, this is a, sorry at, to interrupt you, Jim. This is an important slide because many people are asking, well, if you get vaccinated, you, you may lose the pregnancy, but what about birth defects and what it is due to the fetus? So I think this is a very important slide because apart from losing um, the, the, the baby, those that survive, we're going to have birth defects. Is that not correct? That's exactly right. Uh, there's a, a huge um, showing of all types of pathologies in the fetus and in the mother, all of which you know well. The, the vaccine causes autoimmune disease. Uh, you know that in the mother and in the fetus. It causes a major suppression of the immune system in the mother, in the fetus, and in the newborn. It causes inflammation. And anytime inflammation is present in embryogenesis and organ development, it equates to death and malformations. And the scale, the scale of this is like, I mean, if you look at this, I mean, 78.2 versus all other vaccines, 0.5 per month. I mean, that's 150-fold difference it's it's massive and and up oh, Jim, um, the are, are they not safe and effective in pregnancy the vaccines yeah aren't <laughs> we told that they're safe and effective i think that's what your data is showing well right they're they're absolutely right you're absolutely right they're they're totally effective but the problem is it's negative efficacy exactly the, the vaccine is shown only to worsen pregnancy risk of infection, increase the load of more virulent strains, and increase the risk of more serious disease from COVID-19. So it's completely on all four fronts negative efficacy. There is no efficacy in pregnancy, and we have much, much more safe repurpose drugs to use in pregnancy and supplements. Uh, I'll repeat once again, the vaccine is absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy 
and any physician, any physician that recommends it, don't believe them. And I would take it a step further. And I, if you've been damaged, um, I would consider lawsuit. And I'll be happy to be your expert witness pro bono uh, because this is an absolute breach of scientific method. It's killing adults, fetuses, mothers, and children, and it must not go on. Anybody that cannot see the explosion of data that's concerning with this vaccine is either blind or they don't want to know or they're on the take. I want to just uh, look at some of the data that I pulled off this weekend. Um, uh, cystic hygroma is a very rare complication in um, pregnancy. It's a complication where there's an abnormal development of the lymph system. It, you know, between in the first trimester and early second trimester, and it's manifest by um, large collections of fluid, skin edema, uh, pleural fluid, ascites, and death. About half of these babies have um, chromosomal abnormalities. When I pulled out the analytics and I actually pulled out the diagnosis in VAERS this past weekend of cystic hygroma, there's only eight cases of fetal cystic hygroma in VAERS. Only eight. They're all secondary to the COVID vaccination. So you're, you're looking at an odds ratio of 94. I mean, it's massive. If you're looking at the diagnosis in VAERS, and this is just from since Friday, of, of um, fetal chromosomal abnormalities, interesting, fetal chromosomal abnormalities, there are only 11 cases reported in VAERS from all years, last 20, 30 years. They're all associated with COVID vaccination, none of the other vaccines. Hey, James, could you speak to the slide in terms of pregnancy loss? Because yes. this, this is, I think, the question that most pregnant women, you know, are interested in, you know, is, is the vaccine safe in pregnancy? I mean, that's the question. And I mean, it's obvious what the answer is. Yeah, it's, it's very, very dangerous in pregnancy. It's, there's a significant increase in not only miscarriage, and we define that as a loss of pregnancy um, before 20 weeks gestation. 19 weeks and six days or before then, a fetal death or a stillbirth is 20 weeks or later. There's a massive increase in both miscarriage and fetal death. Now, um, you know, Dr. Merrick, to, to your point, um, I can give you an odds ratio that I can be very comfortable with because I'm dividing the risk of the COVID vaccine compared to the risk of other commonly used vaccines. And I'm looking at 30 years of data. So I can give you a very confident odds ratio, but I can't give you an exact percent. In other words, the attack rate or the numbers needed to kill or numbers needed to save. Hey, Jim, you, can you educate me what is the percentage? So in uh, miscarriages, how many occur in first, second, and third trimester? It's, it's overwhelmingly first, correct? That's correct. And um, Paul, if you look at, if you consider physiology and, and just the very fact that a woman achieves uh, conception in, in a normal cycle 
two weeks after the start of her last menstrual period. That's when ovulation occurs. Now, she doesn't know she's pregnant until two weeks later when she's missed a period. So by the time that she's missed a period, when she doesn't even know she's pregnant, the spontaneous miscarriage rate might be very, very high. It might be up towards um, 60, 70, 80%. But then every day and every week that goes on up to 18 weeks, it's substantially reduced. It, uh, it 10 weeks or 12 weeks, it's only about 12%. At 20 weeks, it's extremely rare. So we, I think it's very important, the biggest problem that um, non-obstetricians and non-MFMs um, focus on when they talk about pregnancy losses, they don't segregate miscarriage from stillbirth. And it's absolute a must because the stillbirth is much more rare and much more important. Jim, what's the definition of stillbirth? When do you start calling it stillbirth? We start calling it at 20 weeks and zero days. At 20 weeks and zero days, it's a, it's a dead fetus. It's a stillbirth. At okay. 19 weeks and six days, it's a miscarriage. I know that's a technical definition, but that's, that's what we use. And, and I, I think that there's, there's no question that it increases the risk of miscarriage. But I think the numbers are all over the chart from the data that we have. Okay. Uh, that's a great question. I, I want to focus on, you know, um, excellent article, you gentlemen, um, and I know a lot of your audience saw it yesterday from Israel, and there were 58 uh, severe adverse reactions in uh, toddlers um, three years of age or less, <clears throat> a few of them with, um, that had basically a cardiac arrest. Well, I want to show you data that I also just got this weekend. From, from just that, if you look at, let's see, it's no, it's on the data. If you look at uh, the cardiac arrest in the, um, in the fetus, if you look at cardiac arrest, there's a, a very small number of cases over the last 30 years, and they're most all of them in COVID vaccination um, with a huge odds ratio. Wow. Of, uh, COVID vaccine versus say influenza vaccine, talk about like a 50 fold. So it, it's, there's no question that, that um, growth abnormalities, fetal growth restriction, intrauterine growth restriction, fetal chromosomal abnormalities, fetal vascular malformation. So abnormal blood flows in the middle cerebral artery and the fetal renal arteries in the, um, in the umbilical arteries they're uh, substantially increased, um, as is fetal cystic hygroma that, that we already talked about. So, hey, so there's some very, very serious events that occur. Yeah. You, you are showing right now, so I, I just want to interject, because so this, I know what the New England Journal of Medicine looks like. This is a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I can't see the conclusion. Can I guess the conclusion? Oh, yes, you can guess it. By definition, if it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's somehow reassuring of the safety of this vaccine. Am I correct? Well, you're, you would be correct in that. And that's exactly what it was pushed, it, is that you know, nobody read the article. They just saw the safety in pregnant persons. Look at the, you know, the, it, there's no way that this would be published in a, in a you know, grocery market tabloid. 
Yeah, I mean, you have the conclusions in the title and they're completely fraudulent data. So I think that, you know, Dr. Corey, this goes to your point. You know, you made such an excellent point uh, on our prior communications and, and your presentations that these are, I believe this is a ghost written article right from Pfizer. And of course the editor in chief, and I won't slander anybody's name, although he should be slandered because he's got multiple conflicts of interest in the commercial market with, um, and, and he's one of the 16 that have major fraudulent conflicts of interest that they did not declare. And they voted for the FDA to push the vaccine in children and yeah. just voted yesterday again in toddlers. Yeah, I'll do it. It's, it's Eric Rubin. And uh, yes, he is on those vaccine panels. Um, and by the way, fun fact, uh, I don't want to detract, but Jim, um, one of the first things that the AFL-CCC did is uh, I testified in, in May of 2020 on the critical need for corticosteroids, because um, that was in our protocol. This is when the entire world said, don't use steroids in hospital phase COVID. And anyway, we turned out to be right. And Eric Rubin, when he was questioned on our advocacy for steroids, he said that we got lucky. He called us lucky. So anyway, there's there's a, a little place in my heart for uh, Eric, Eric Rubin. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. that. And then, but you also have some other stellar individuals. Um, Mandeep Mara, Dr. Mandeep Mara, the first author of the brilliant Lancet study that it, it looked really, really good on paper. It was from multiple different con, uh, continents, uh, massive sample size, but it was all done so quickly. And uh, Mandeep Mara, a very famous cardiothoracic surgeon from uh, Brigham, uh, uh, apparently got called on the carpet because he couldn't produce the data, because he didn't have any data, because it was ghostwritten. And when the people that ghost wrote the article, which was Pfizer, probably, they couldn't, they had to retract the article. Endless, endless, endless corruption. And, and that's, uh, you know, you know us better than I do because you guys are the heroes that were on the forefront of early treatment. I mean, you guys know better than anybody in the world that treating COVID um, was totally predictable from, Three, three decades of, of data, including Fauci's own data uh, from yeah. 2005. So he, he knew, and, and it was, unless they totally disparage um, and Satanized the repurposed drugs, it would have been illegal for them to push the vaccine. And that's 100%. why they pushed it. 100%. And, and you know, they're responsible for all the people that have died from COVID, unnecessarily, they have a lot of blood on their hands, a lot. And, and you guys are heroes. And, you know, there were a lot of people like you, you guys were the leaders, but, you know, Dr. McCullough, you, um, th this all over the world, you know, Ben Marble, um, who yep. was treated 250,000 in all 50 states with a 99.99% success rate. There's no more jury out. There's no more data that needs to be collected. The science is in. Early treatment is a way to go. The vaccine is completely unnecessary and it's deadly. It should have been removed on the market, from the market on April 30th, 2021, when the CDC had all the post-marketing data. 
I like this slide, um, and I want your viewers to look at it really carefully. This is the kind of um, nonsense and the chicanery, the deceit. They have this Shamak Bureau. Uh, I, I, I'm sure he was. This was ghost written. This data, by the way, is right out of the April first tranche. The um, Pfizer 5.3.2 post marketing data. It's right out of there. It, it's almost data point for data point. And this was published a year ago with the fraudulent conclusions. They said there's no difference in miscarriage rate. Well, look look at if you if you only study the miscarriage rates for when it should have been done for the vaccine that was administered in the first trimester or the early second trimester, the miscarriage rate was 90%. It wasn't 12%. They fraudulently included all the late vaxxers in pregnancy and then said, oh, well, they didn't miscarry. Well, of course they didn't miscarry. They didn't get the vaccine until 30 weeks or whatever. I thought I had a slide in here. I, I think it, we, before I go on to this slide, I, I think we, we spoke yesterday about the fact that the abortion pill, which is um, about 80% effective if you give the right dose, it's RU486, Mepristone. Um, it's got black box warnings. It's, you're not allowed to use in the general public, pub, public. Why? Well, because it's dangerous for women of reproductive age because it, it has a miscarriage rate of about 80%. Well, it turns out that, hell, we might as well throw that out the window if they're looking to kill pregnancies. Let's use a vaccine. It's more effective in killing pregnancies and embryos than it is the abortion pill. It's 90% effective in, if you look at Shim, Shimabakuro's data, whereas the abortion pill, methopristone, that's only 80% effective. Where's the black box warning? This is yet another case of, of breastfeeding. And I, I want to say that, again, I will state that you should not receive the vaccine when you're breastfeeding. I believe it's contraindicated. I believe it should never be used. And this is one great example. This is a five-month-old, uh, beautiful baby, perfectly normal, been thriving and growing for five months, you know, beautiful growth records. Mom gets vaccinated and comes home, breastfeeds the baby the next day. The baby immediately has an extreme rash, irritable, inconsolable fever, Elevated enzymes, you know where that's going, thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, baby's dead. Now, <clears throat> did, did that get reported to VAERS? Probably not. Most of them don't. But this in of itself, it's hard to believe the temporal relationship. It's hard, you know, the naysayers will say, oh, it's just luck of the draw. I, I don't think so. I, not with this type of story until you can give me more reassuring data. I do not recommend vaccination while breastfeeding. Thank you. Thanks, James. So I think you've, you've kind of made it clear that um, the vaccine is not safe in pregnancy and the vaccine is really not safe during breastfeeding, although the CDC and FDA say otherwise. So, I mean, once again, they are lying and providing false information. Yeah, and the, and the most absurd is that last point you made, Jim, which 
a lot of us recognize, right, which is that famous table in, in the New England Journal of Medicine article where they literally use as a denominator uh, women in their third trimester and they called it miscarriage rate, right? So they diluted the massive amount of miscarriages. Right? Remind me again, what it was 82% miscarriages in, in, in the first trimester? It, depending on, they didn't follow a lot of them up, so we don't have a lot of information. They admitted the to- ones they followed, it was other 80. Ones, yeah, might even be higher than that. Some people estimate between 80 up to 90% miscarriage rate. And, and, and again, I, I hate to going back to this, you know, this mass psychosis and this systematic cowardness and that no one wants to speak up, but if you're an OB-GYN practicing in any advanced health economy with mass vaccination rates, your practice must be fundamentally different than it was in the past. The, I mean, you must be dealing with patients who are constantly coming with extremely high rates of dysmenorrhea, amenorrhea, menorrhagia, uh, infertility, spontaneous abortion. So so you see this explode. I mean, you're normal, you're used to a normal level of disease and patients coming to you for issues. I mean, we all have had practices, but if you're an OB guy, how could you not see this tremendous disruption in the health of your, your patient population and yet not speak up about it? It's, uh, it's horrible. Um, I, I think Here, that, should we get some questions from Ben? Sure. We have a lot. <laughs> You've answered yeah, some sure, of them. I'm sure, I'm sure Jim triggered a lot. So let's go. Let's let's get Jim asking questions, uh, answering questions. Um, but, you know, actually, Pierre, what you just said was something that I'm interested in knowing is where are the other doctors speaking up? What is, is it? Are, is it the threat to the livelihood of all of them that they can't that they don't dare do it? I mean, yes. you, you must be whispering at different meetings that you go to different medical meetings, right? We, we are, but I, I think there's several different levels. That's a great question. And I thought about it a lot because, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of great friends and colleagues and, uh, that, that I love them. Um, you know, we've, um, they've seen me, they've heard me talk and they won't talk to me anymore. They, they won't debate me. All they do is ad hominem attacks. But the first uh, level is they took a procedure, a poison shot, they were duped, they pitched it up, they drank the poison, they took it, and it's irreversible. So it's a very difficult psychological yeah. exercise to do to go back and admit to yourself that you took a poison and it's wrong. Now, next level, not only did I take it, but I pushed it in all my family and all my patients. That's the next level. Now, what am I going to do? Um, I'm going to go back and say, I was in error. I pushed this and I shouldn't have pushed it. I should have done my due diligence, but I didn't. I should have listened to Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick and Dr. Thorpe, but I didn't. I mocked them out instead. Um, I got to keep going down this route or I'm just going to get in more trouble if I admit that I was wrong. I think that answer is, is we've long recognized that like it's very difficult to walk stuff back, but you brought up that element as a physician, right? Not only do we have our practices, our patients, but as a physician in any family, people come to you for advice. 
They ask you things. And so they've not only recommended to their patients, but to their loved ones, you know, to do this and suddenly to suddenly admit that I, I actually wouldn't find that a problem. I can admit mistakes. You know, if I made an error in judgment or if I said something at one time and learned something later, but I think for the vast majority, it's too difficult. It is. It's uh, only a few percentage of people that can do it. You know, I have three biological daughters and they're all young, beautiful, talented um, daughters. Um, and I always tried to model to them whenever I screwed up, which I've screwed up a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes, but whether it's my daughters or uh, medical students or residents, there's nothing more brave for me to do to say, hey, I really made a mistake. I was wrong and you were right. I really apologize. I came down on you. I shouldn't have. I was wrong. That's a really liberating thing to do. And I think it it's the crown of a woman or a man or a human being to be able to say that. Most people can't. The third level that I was going on your question is the net, though you got the first level, the second level, you know, now you got the third level. Now, if I, if I tell my patients the truth, now I'm up for liability. Liability. Yeah, I knew it was coming. Yeah. Because the, the manufacturer may not have liability unless somebody proves fraud on that which may come, but at any rate, the manufacturer isn't, but the doctor who told me to take it and therefore I lost the baby or whatever, or I yeah. lost my ability, the doctor is liable, right? That's yeah. right. Could be. It's always yeah. a concern. Yeah. Uh, right, Betsy, what do you got for questions? Oh, I got a lot. I got a lot. Okay. Uh, here, Janet Dye says, my daughter-in-law who is 40 is in her second trimester of pregnancy. She has two blood clots in her uterus that show up on ultrasound. She has had one of the vaccines, two doses, but not the boosters. Can these clots be the result of the vaccine? And how dangerous to her and the baby can this be? Now repeat that, I didn't catch it. She got the vaccine when she was pregnant? Uh, she doesn't say when. Um, she, she just says she's in her second trimester pregnancy. She has the two blood clots on the uterus that showed up on ultrasound. She has had one of the vaccines, two doses, but not the boosters. She doesn't say exactly when she got the vaccine. It's, it's hard for me to, um, to def make a definitive um, conclusion on that. It's cert it certainly could be related. We've had a lot of as you saw in the data, various data that I just looked at this window uh, this yeah. weekend, we have cardiac arrest in the fetus. Uh, we have uh, thrombose, um, uh, coagulopathies in the mother in the fetus. Um, gosh, in, in part three of patient betrayal series that we did, I uh, this was eight weeks ago, there were 1,366 vac COVID vaccine-related complications in the peer-reviewed literature, 1,366. That's only in like 15 months. Now there's already over 1,700. How can anybody ever, this is unprecedented in the history of medicine where you could have such an outpouring of peer-reviewed publications documenting death and disastrous complications published, and yet there's no acknowledgement. Yeah, I think, uh, Betty, the answer is no more boosters, no more vaccination. You can't, I mean, you can't undo being vaccinated. I mean, all you can do is make sure you don't get a booster, uh, 
you know, that, just to add insult to injury. Jim, you know, to your point, because it's interesting that you bring that up, because I was thinking about this week, is that they've allowed case reports to be published because it's a one-off, right? So, so this, this, this absolute explosion of all these footballers and soccer players and athletes that are resting on the field, it's all an unfortunate individual circumstance. But when you start looking at the papers that start to do summary analyses of, for instance, like what you're talking about, which is you look at the, the, the sum total of the frequency, incidents, and severity of these events, the summary analyses are not getting published. They're being rejected. And those that get through are retracted, right? So Peter McCullough and, and Jessica Rose, their myocarditis paper, retracted without reason. And, and the most of the summary analysis you'll see stuck on preprints. They're not making it into publications. They'll allow the case reports, but not the big picture stuff showing the, the scope and the scale. And, and, and again, it's, 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 it's about the censorship and propaganda. I mean, the, 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 the journals are controlled. That's another message that we've learned. I, I never knew that. I, even Paul, who's smarter than anyone, he didn't even know how controlled uh, the major high impact journals are. And, and every day we learn the depth of the control and the corruption at the level of, of, of published medical uh, journals. It's, it's absolutely, it's terrifying because it, got, it, it influences all the doctors and their behaviors. They can, they can teach doctors to do whatever because they have an implicit trust and faith in the wisdom and expertise of what comes out of those journals. So you put something in a big journal, it becomes the rule of law in medicine. Hey, Betsy, you have a question oh, for us? Oh, I have lots, yeah. Tracy wants to know, can you talk about the impact of more recent COVID variants on early pregnancy? Um, the, it's, it's hard to predict. I, my patients have done, um, and primarily they're in the Midwest, um, my patients so far have done really well in the last six months. They're starting to get... Um, some mild uh, COVID symptoms and sickness from the variants. I haven't seen anything like really severe, um, which uh, I, I also think it's important for those women that are asking questions and do have risk factors. There are very, very safe preventative measures that you can take that are much safer than the vaccine. And one of those is just hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams once a week. I've been treating um, pregnant women and rheumatologists have been treating pregnant women, even in the first trimester with 400 milligrams a day, all during pregnancy. For 40 years, I've done that. I've never had a problem with hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are safer, have a higher safety profile than Tylenol or... What's important is that we're not hearing people speculate about what if in the future, we're hearing people talk about what has been now that they've discovered all the lies and discrepancies, all the bad science of fraudulent science that has occurred up to this point in the so-called COVID pandemic. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.